I'm Chelsea Zaccato. And I'm Natalie Heacock. And this is Lumber Slingers. Each podcast, we will be bringing you relevant and useful industry information, including interviews with top lumber professionals and discussion of current events in the industry. Whether it be lumber grading, industry and market trends, or who's who in lumber, we hope to extend your current tally on industry knowledge. Hi, Charles. <laughs> Good morning. <laughs> what a day. What a day it's been. Uh, today actually is May 4th. May the 4th be with you. May the 4th be with you. And what better day to be perfectly nerdy about the subject we're going to talk about today. <laughs> it's very exciting. I'm actually pretty excited. So should we, we should probably talk about why we're talking about this and where we got the topic from. Yes. Well, it's probably fresh in your mind because we were just at EMI last week and EMI is Executive Management Institute ran by Northwestern Kellogg in Chicago. And it's basically a week of classes surrounding kind of topics that interest leaders in our industry is kind of how they built the course. And one of the courses that we took during this five-day um, intensive five learning session. <laughs> <laughs> yes, <laughs> still recovering mentally, obviously, but was a mergers class on mergers and acquisitions, and it was called "Pulling Back the Curtain" by and the the professor's name was Tom Termel. Very, um, very knowledgeable on this subject, as it's part of his career as well, and. Um, you know, for me, my knowledge of mergers and acquisitions is very basic. And hopefully, Natalie, you with a little bit more of a finance accounting background, you probably probably took away completely different things than what I took away. So I am excited to hear you talk about it. And I'm going to ask questions. Yeah, definitely. And I think I think it's important to note that if you're not living in the private equity world, then a lot of these terms and things that we're going to talk about aren't forefront. It's not like you and I just shoot the shit about private equity all day. I mean, even I, this was actually my second time. So I'm on the committee. So I had the opportunity to go sit in on a few classes so we can make alterations for next year if needed, which actually I don't even think so because it was so fantastic and we got such great feedback But um, to the professors. But sitting through the class again a second time, two years or a year and a half later, it was just great. It's just a refresher because I don't deal in private equity every day. You don't, you know, you read about it and you hear a lot of terms and maybe you know what these top level terms are, but to kind of get into it, I think it's really exciting and super timely because today I also listened to a podcast, a different podcast, and it was called How Private Equity Firms Widen the Income Gap. So our professor from Northwestern is in private equity like like you said, and he's super pro private equity. And this podcast I listened to is not, not yeah. pro private equity. And so it's, it's, uh, I like to have both sides of it and make sure that we're painting the picture of what it can and can't be, because sometimes it can be real shitty. I yeah. mean, for those listening who've been through mergers and acquisitions, specifically backed by private equity, you probably have some war stories. Um, it's not all candy and rainbows. Yeah. I mean, I actually, this class is very informative as to what <laughs> private equity is and how much it is behind a lot of these acquisitions that we're seeing. Um, even though there's all different kinds of investors 
uh, when it comes to mergers and acquisitions. But typically, what we're hearing, especially in our industry, is private equity acquisitions. I could see why you would think that all these rich people put their money together, they become even more of like a power horse than, Mm -hmm. you know, your average, you know, middle class, if that even exists anymore. So um, yeah, I'm interested to hear what what you heard. The podcast, the Widening the Income Gap podcast, it was on Fresh Air and they interviewed a financial journalist. Her name was Gretchen Morganson and she has this crazy extensive background. She was like head of the investigative finance research at Wall Street Journal and yada, yada, yada. So she has a book and it's called These Are the Plunderers and it's specifically about private equity firms. So she's like (laughs) 100%. (laughs) Yeah, so and that podcast was most a lot on the healthcare industry, which is really interesting not to get off topic, but she had a statistic. It was like 11% of retirement communities are owned by private equity and 40% of emergency room departments are owned by private equity. So like when you're going into your hospital, you think it's your typical hospital. It's not like that section is owned by private equity, which I think was is crazy. That is wild. She called it capitalism on steroids. That's what she calls <laughs> private equity. So before we get into that, we can... Uh, and then imagine how many of those private equity firms are funded by Big Pharma. Mm-hmm. Like, I bet you could go down a rabbit hole. It's scary. Actually, that was one of the things that I wanted to talk about, which we just learned was who are the, well, okay, I guess we should back up. What is private equity? So if you see like PE or PEF, that stands for private equity or private equity fund, and essentially it's investment of private capital in non-public assets. So that's like you and I would be private capital potentially, and we'd be investing in a company that's not public. Um, which is why we see, I think we see it a lot in the lumber industry because there aren't a ton of public companies. It's a lot of family-owned, smaller companies. Right, yeah. So then when you get into it, who are these investors in private equity? And something I learned is that 71% of investors in private equity are pension funds. That's like PERS, CalPERS, potentially government employees, it's just, it's really interesting. It's a huge amount, 71%. One interesting thing I learned about private equity, which you might be t- touching on this later, was that when you hear about these private equity mergers or acquisitions, that usually the private equity firm only owns it for like up to five years before it's resold to somebody else. And that's the typical lifespan, which I thought that was an interesting It actually makes sense the more I thought about who I've seen get acquired uh, in small business and then how they get bought by even either a bigger conglomerate or they become a publicly traded company. Right. And what something we talked about too was it's like, okay, so you as the executive management team, you get to pick who you want to buy you, which private equity firm do, you know, do your values align? What else do they have in their portfolio? Are you the add-on or are you the original? There's special words for those that I uh, am butchering, which (laughs) we'll probably find. Um, But you get to have that say, but then after that, that's it. So five years, they're going to bundle you up and sell you to somebody else. You don't have a say. So generally... You're not the boss anymore is what he's... (laughs) <laughs> right. And the executive team is out the door by five years. Right. But as a customer, a supplier, an employee, you might still be there. And I think that was the point 
from the podcast, the Fresh Air podcast. It's like the executives generally make money and then it's an exit strategy. But I do think that there's other reasons. Like, for example, if you need cash, maybe you're trying to grow and you can't grow and you don't want to use bank funding for some reason. That's another positive reason to go private equity. Right. Yeah. And what we're seeing in our industry is a lot of these companies that are being acquired, they are kind of at the end of their lifespan with the current ownership or they don't have the next generation that's wanting to be involved or take it over. And so the timing right now with our baby baby boomers and the generation that's retiring, they're interested in you know, their five-year plan to retire is probably all they might be thinking about rather than the next 20 years. That's a good point. I mean, if you don't have the next generation or you were, you know, three-generation family-owned company and there isn't a fourth, it makes sense. And it's not like everyone has all this cash. I mean, maybe now they do because of COVID and everything, but they don't have this cash just to go buy companies. Like another lumber company can't just go and buy a large lumber company. Right. And their fourth generation might be a YouTube star. Like they don't want to get back into a lumber company. <laughs> They're making plenty of money. I mean, I wish they would just make like lumber YouTube videos to keep elevating our industry, but <laughs> I know that'd be nice. <sighs> Something else I thought that was interesting is there's 8,100 US private equity firms. It's a lot. That is a lot. Wow. I mean, Yeah. And they're making all these decisions. Sometimes I hear these random groups that buy companies that we know through the industry or through our associations and, or maybe we do business with them. And it's like, huh, this small private equity group bought this huge company and I've never heard of them, but that makes sense because there's 8,100 of them. Okay. (laughs) They might just be adding that industry to their portfolio. They're not like a private equity firm based on the building products industry, right? Mm -hmm. Okay. So the question is went earlier is, are you a platform? So are you the original lumber company or retail company? Or, you know, are you the original one or are you an add-on? So they already have a company. They already have a lumber company. Now they want to add you to their portfolio. Mm. That's those are the correct terms. That's the question to ask when you're talking to somebody looking to invest? Yes. If if you are thinking about private equity, you say, are we the platform or are we the add-on? Add-on. Because if you're the add-on, I don't don't think you get as much uh, say in how things are run because they're already being ran. Right. Something else I think is interesting is, you know, if you... And I think this would be with any sort of you know, major business decision is who is aware of the decision and who is not aware of the decision. And we kind of talked about, went went around about, do you let your employees know? Do you not let your employees know? What does that look like? Well, and the timing of that, because I think somebody in the class spoke about, they couldn't tell anybody because the likelihood of it maybe not going through, or we were talking about what stage it's okay to tell people because up until the very end, if the deal doesn't go through, what kind of message are you sending to your employees that you were even considering it or going down that path? And so what kind of effect does that have on company morale and like how secure people feel in their job 
at your company. Right. You like, hey, they're trying to sell. I'm going to start looking elsewhere because I don't want to be here when that happens. Right. And something that the podcast mentioned today was, you know, what they try to do is they strip the company of assets, they cut costs. But if you think about it, I see a positive and a negative side to this because the other side of it is if it's a private owned company, they might have Aunt Sue on payroll Mm -hmm. or they might have some frivolous business expenses that really are weighing down the bottom line. And you do need to get, I mean, if you're selling obviously to another company, it's no longer family owned. You can't have those expenses. Right. And I think that's something that comes up during due diligence, right? That's like that's the part where they uncover and unravel all of the Pam or Sue or Jimmy Bob down the road. Are they actually working? Are they just getting a paycheck? And what other things are we going to uncover? Right. Such as legal issues or, you know, maybe they're in litigation for something or maybe there's like within five years of like being sued or I don't know, there's liabilities that have to be considered, which I thought that was interesting how in depth the due diligence that the investors go through once they're openly having the conversation about a merger or acquisition. Yeah. And like maybe there's a weird accounting, funny accounting happening. Mm-hmm. Cooking the books. Are there, are there uh, external auditors? Are they on gap financials? I mean, that stuff's a little bit, you can ask those questions pretty early on. But once you dig in, who knows what you're going to find. Right. Is your IT outdated completely and you're susceptible to all the viruses and it's going to cost $100,000 right out the gate to like get up to date with the security? Yeah, there's a lot of things. And then a lot of things. I think the biggest thing that you and I talked about that we agree is the culture fit. Mm -hmm. I mean, if you sell to private equity and then all your employees leave, what's what is there? Yeah. And it's interesting because sometimes when I hear about mergers or acquisitions happening, you know, like you said, like, okay, say it is a culture fit, but then all of a sudden you've created all these redundancies in like positions, you know, (laughs) you know, and it's like, you have to consider what that looks like to the culture. If you're bringing in another vice president of sales and now there's two and then one gets booted out, what does that look like? Right. And which one gets booted? Oh, I don't feel like we've talked about a lot of positives, actually. No. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, um, I think the positives happen in the pocketbook of those who are acquiring or being acquired. (laughs) I mean, so I guess there was a gal we met. I won't mention the names of the companies, but there was somebody that we met last week who had just recently been through a merger and acquisition. And she said that it's been nothing but good things for her company that got acquired and that it brought in a whole lot of like better culture, more resources, and maybe something that like small companies don't really have, you know, access to technology and Mm -hmm. maybe a little bit more structure to the organization. So I can see that being a positive when it's like, okay, now we have money behind the engine that's running this company. And, you know, it's, I'm sure it has its pros and cons. And you think about what comes with working with a small company, which is 
departments are, you know, sometimes there's one person wearing five different hats and having a whole department, you know, for one thing that you can rely on and get it done more effectively and efficiently. I could see that being a positive for people who right through it. And like you mentioned, the technology part, it's like some companies are so outdated to get up to speed with the current technology that we have is not only is it a capital investment, but it's a time investment. And if you don't have the right people on your team to get you up to speed, but you can sell your company and potentially you're an add-on to an existing lumber company that has all this technology. I mean, I like to say, if you're not growing, you're dying. And (laughs) if you can't keep up with technology, it becomes a serious problem. Yeah. And sometimes technology is just going to eat you up, Mm -hmm. even if you keep up with it. (laughs) AI, AI, AI. (laughs) Right. And you just have to, if you don't have the right IT team or the right IT people, yeah, um, I've experienced that in the past where it's just, it's, if you don't do IT, it's hard to do IT. (laughs) A hundred percent. Well, talking to, you know, Communication even is difficult because you talk in two different languages. So it's mm-hmm. nice to have somebody that in your own organization that you can rely on that understands the language of IT and the language of the company. Right. So we also talked about um, how you value your company uh, to be purchased. And there's a few different methods, which made me think we should do a podcast on present value. I think that might be a little nerdy, fun podcast we could do. So fun. So fun for me. But there's a couple different methods. Obviously, if you can compare yourself to any current similar acquisitions, that's helpful. But it is really hard when it's all private and none of that stuff is really disclosed. You can compare yourself to public companies and their value. But oftentimes, you don't really see a public company that's similar to you in the private space. At least that's my experience from the lumber industry and also from when I was an auditor of small private companies. It's just not that information is not readily available. So you can do other methods like the discounted cash flow model, which is basically present valuing your future cash flows. Back in the day when I was in college, I used to actually do the present value calculation by hand instead of using the formulas because I told myself that if I memorized the formula, I could use it for the rest of my life. And if you were to ask me the the formula formula? today, I would have no idea. I would just um, pick up the the book and grab the tables. So anyways, we should do an episode on that. And then the other one is taking EBITDA, earnings before interest tax, taxes, depreciation, and amortization um, times some sort of multiple. And I think people really get off on this multiple part. Like, oh, I was 7X, I was 8X. Like, okay. Didn't he say it's like normally you're around one? Or did he say one is bad? I can't remember. One is bad. Okay. Well, yeah, (laughs) because that's just one. (laughs) (laughs) When I look at equations, (laughs) I start getting confused. (laughs) (laughs) Um, Well, obviously 10X would be great. Right. It's really interesting but also it's like how do you know like okay oh we were 10x but like bob down the street was 5x like why does it i don't know it's really interesting to me 
Like, well, probably just because at the end of the day, it means that it said it's a good indicator of cash flow, which means you're making more than Bob down the street, I guess. Yeah. I think market, most you market just share. feel good about what you did. <clears throat> Not compare yourself to others, but just compare yourself to yourself. No, I think you want to be the best and the greatest and you want to be 10x. <laughs> and then post it everywhere. I was 10x. What were you? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Anybody can 10x. 10x. That's it. That's all I have for today. Wow. That was very interesting. EBITDA is, can you say what that means again? E-B-I-T-D-A means earnings before interest taxes, depreciation, and amortization. And that can be found on your profit and loss statement? Or is it... You have to... I mean, maybe some would include your EBITDA at the bottom, but you would have to calculate that if you mm-hmm. had access to your profit and loss income statement. You, But it's a very pretty simple calculation if you have the financial statements in front of you. As long as you have the financial statements to pull from, then you can practice this at home for funsies. Yes. Just go on to Google and pull up a income statement and then go ahead and calculate it for yourself. And that's your homework. <laughs> that is your homework for today. EBITDA uncovered. Yeah. <laughs> well, this has been interesting. I know we're just scratching the surface. So hopefully we can do more uh, discussions on something that is truly affecting the lumber industry. And maybe it piques some curiosity for, for people to look into what it means. Yes. And shoot us an email if you have any questions or things we could dive deeper into because we'd be happy to do that. Absolutely. Well, Chelsea, this was a finance chattily. Finance chattily. I loved it. I had fun. It was great. All right. We will see you next time. See you on another. Another.